my waves get lost in the ocean. Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions. Hi, this is Nancy Herald, and welcome to my show, High Road to Humanity. In every episode, I tell you powerful true stories filled with great wisdom that you can use in your own life as you strive for a higher road to travel. My featured guests will have their own unique stories to tell that enlighten your mind and your soul. So kick back, relax, and learn the secret to success when you take the high road. Hi, this is Nancy Yerald, and we are here today with a wonderful new guest, and welcome to High Road to Humanity. Um, you know, I read this book. A friend of mine told me about this book, and it's about a cat, and this cat makes the rounds with a wonderful doctor. His name is Dr. Dosa. Here's his book. Um, it's fantastic. I read it, and then I was so lucky to get him onto my show. So um, let me, before I bring him on, let me tell you a little bit about making rounds with Oscar. And I'm going to, if you guys will sit back and relax a minute, I'm going to read you just a little synopsis before I bring David on to ask him some questions, because uh, I want you guys to get a feel of the book and, and what's going on here. So sit back and relax. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here. He's talking to uh, to Mary. She's at the front counter and he says, Mary, what do you think, what, what do you first think about what Oscar was doing? And she put down her pen and and sat back in her chair and she said, I guess at first I really didn't think about it. Some of the aides started to talk about the cat always being there when patients died. As I remembered it, I suspect Oscar's first patient was Marianne McCullough. Her son Jack used to bring Oscar into the room with him because her mother really loved cats. Oscar would never really stay with her for long, but as she got sicker, he would stay longer. So on the day Marion died, Oscar actually jumped into her bed of his own accord and sat down beside her. Jack telephoned me a few days later and told me how fortunate it had been that Oscar jumped onto the bed. Why? I guess he thought it was a signal that she was going to die soon. Mary looked over at me. At the time, I thought it was a cute story, and this is Dr. Dosa talking, but I didn't give it much thought. You should talk to him, though. So that was your first inkling, I said. But what what did it for you? I suppose the thing that made me a believer was a death that occurred several months later. By then, a number of people were talking about Oscar, including several of the, several of the hospice nurses. Your patient, Ralph Reynolds, was dying, and we were trying to do everything to make him more comfortable. And one of your colleagues was up here and went to take a look at him. She came out suggesting that he was close to death and gave him some hospice recommendations. One of the aides overheard and went off to find Oscar. You know... Dr. Dosa, welcome to High Road to Humanity, and thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it, and thanks for writing this book. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's been an interesting journey. As a, uh, you know, everybody always says that there's always something that follows you throughout your career. This seems to be the uh, the thing that I've done that that will follow me throughout throughout my career. I suspect. Yeah. Um, well, but, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't say you're you're a geriatrician, correct? Mm-hmm. And, yes. Yeah, and so right now, where do you practice? Are you still? Are you at the um, at the the home now, or where do you practice now? 
Well, I actually do a number of different things. I um, have uh, some research grants. Uh, I see patients uh, at the Providence Veterans Hospital here in in town. Um, I'm on the board of directors for that nursing home, Steerhouse Nursing and Rehabilitation. I don't see patients there currently because uh, my day job tends to keep me in in multiple places. I also teach at Brown uh, at the School of Public Health. Uh, so it keeps me busy right, between right. The, the different roles. Well, t- so when did you start? So let me let me rewind a little bit. Steerhouse, when did you start working at Steerhouse to where this all occurred? How long ago was that? Well, so I've been here in Providence since 2003 and started working at Steerhouse uh, almost immediately after my arrival. And, and uh, you know, Oscar was new to the facility in 2005. Okay. Uh, so that's that's kind of when he joined. And I suspect, you know, we started talking about this particular cat and what he was doing in and around that time. Um, it used to kind of be the running kind of joke um, that, you know, you'd come onto the floor and ask for the Oscar report. You know, where is he going to be? What's he, what's he been up to? And it was kind of this cute thing that we all kind of, you know, where's the cat? What's he doing? Yeah. And, and, you know, it didn't really occur to anybody, I think, until a little while later, after he had done this a number of times, that that what we were seeing was actually kind of a, a unique kind of, uh, um, it, it was unique. And it was, uh, you know, on a floor where there's a lot of uh, sad stories, people kind of at the end of life. Right. This seemed to be something that unified everybody up on the floor that, you know, this cat would, would basically hold vigils for people. And, right. and I kind of had a bad day one one day back in 2000 and I guess seven. Um, and, uh, you know, I had found out that I, I was a finalist for uh, a major research, you know, grant that I was sort of putting a lot of emphasis on. And then I was a finalist, but didn't end up getting the grant. And I remember sitting in my room kind of after hearing from the people at the foundation, you know, thanking me for my, my interest, but telling me I wasn't going to, to get the grant. And, and Mary called me and I remember snapping at her and, and telling her, you know, basically doing what a lot of doctors do to nurses, which is, you know, sort of, uh, um, I snapped at her and she, she asked me a question and, and she basically told me, you know, get over yourself. Uh, <laughs> What, what's what's up with you? Um, and I told her, you know, that it was a bad day. And she told me that I should go home, kiss my wife, have a beer, and that tomorrow, you know, everything would be better. Right. Um, of course, that didn't exactly resonate with me as I was feeling sorry for myself. And, and I kind of told her as such. And she, she told me, well, if you're feeling sorry for yourself, why don't you come over to the nursing home and sit down with so-and-so who was there um, with with her mother? And, um, you know, and she said, oh, by the way, Oscar's there. So you can come and say your, um, you know, your goodbyes. Um at that point, you know, after sitting there for about half an hour, I decided it was just time to do something because all I was doing was staring at my computer screen. Right. Uh, so I decided at that point that I would walk over and, and, and sit down with the patient and the patient's uh, daughter, 
uh, holding a vigil at the end of life. And, and Oscar was there. And, you know, it was really the first time that I sort of sat there and said, you know, this is actually kind of a unique and remarkable thing that this cat is actually holding this vigil. Oscar is not a cat that was particularly friendly. Um, okay. Most often he would hide under beds or in closets or, you know, you would never really see him until somebody really was near the end of life. And so then he, he would, would so let me stop you there. So he gets in the, so when, it, when he knows someone's near the end of life, he goes in their room and he lays in the bed next to them. Is that right? He curls right up next to him. Yeah, usually about a day or two days before he would, he would, you know, kind of come into the room, look around, decide where he was going to sit. Most often that would be either, you know, on the patient's bed, curled up next to them. Sometimes it would be on the window uh, in the room. But, you know, this is a 40-bed nursing home unit, you know, pretty large with lots of places for a cat to hide. And the fact that the cat always seemed to be around you know, the next person to, to move on to bigger and better things um, was really quite unique. Um, and, you know, we at this time, I, I just sort of said this is really remarkable. And I went back uh, to my office and decided to write this little editorial that um, I submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, kind of on a slow news day in 2007, it kind of took on a life of its own. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, it's interesting. Now, you weren't a believer in the beginning. You were pretty skeptical. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I have to say, yes, I was skeptical. I think it was sort of the running joke, kind of. And, and you know, not to take it lightly. Right. These things are not light. Um, but, you know, you look for things that, that help to sort of soften the mood a little bit when you're dealing with terminal care. And right. uh, this was just one of those things. And, you know, we sort of said, yeah, right. You know, the cat knows when somebody's going to die. Of course it does, you know. Right. Um, the, the funny thing about end-of-life care is that, you know, we generally know and have a ballpark idea of, of, of when somebody is going to pass. But we don't actually know when it's going to happen. And a lot of times with uh, with diseases like dementia, it can go on for quite some time. And, and, you know, you'll have family members call you up and say, is it time for me to come into the, you know, come come into town? Right. And the reality of the situation is you don't know. And, you know, I don't have a hotline upstairs or, or whatever you believe but in. But Oscar does. Oscar's got oh, the hotline. <laughs> So, so we, you know, we started to sort of ask, you know, for the Oscar report and, wow. and one time became two and two became four. And, you know, after he did this about 20 times, people were sort of like, wow, this is, you know, really unique. Right. Now in the book, you, cause I, I did read your book and you talk about at one point you're thinking maybe it's a smell or maybe like it's a gas releasing when people die. Um, you were looking scientifically for some reason why. Why the cat would go in there, but nobody could really put their finger on it. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are lots of theories with regards to these kinds of things. And, you know, one thing I learned after the book was released and, and after the editorial was that Oscar's not unique in doing this. 
I think Oscar has a couple of different things. He's got opportunity because mm-hmm. he lives on this floor where um, a sort of terminal dementia floor. Right. Um, so there's certainly opportunity. And, and I think that um, it, it probably is a behavior that got um, emphasized at some point or, you know, rewarded perhaps with attention. Uh, who knows? Um, you know, when you start to look at the scientific theories behind it, we do know that dying cells release ketones, which are sweet smelling um, scents that sometimes you smell on the breasts of diabetics when right. their sugars are really high. And, I read and, that. I read that. I thought know, that was interesting. Also, happens in starvation states. Um, so when a, a cell might be shutting down, this idea of the sweet smell of death, if you, you know, you may have seen, you know, around the idea that this might just be a ketone or something like that, that the, the cat is keying in on, I, I think, you know, obviously is biologically plausible. I, I couldn't ask him. So right, right, you know, you're right. as good as mine. Well, but. I've got my, yeah, I've got my feeling on this. We've got about one minute to, before we go to commercial break. Um, but my feeling on this, cause I work with energy and I've written a book on energy and I really feel it's the energy part. This is Nancy, Nancy's philosophy. I think he's mm-hmm. picking up on the energy of the patient and on the vibration um that's one of my that's what i feel i you know and who knows but um listen we are here today with dr david dosa md here's his book it's called making rounds with oscar and um he's so he's so great to visit us today on high road to humanity i read this book and i really wanted to get him get him on the show so david thanks for coming on um we've got about 30 seconds but if you guys want to pick up the book david they can get it at amazon.com yeah it's available on amazon um and and uh you can probably order it from bookstores uh um i find it periodically at different bookstores and But you certainly can pick it up on Amazon and places where you buy books. All right. Hey, listen, um, this is Nancy Ural, and we'll be right back with High Road to Humanity. Hang on. We have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30-minute coaching session for free to get you on your high road. Hey, all you High Road listeners out there, I just want to take a moment to share with you our new sponsor. I've been working with BestRadioTravel.com to bring the lowest hotel prices to my loyal listeners. Stay tuned during the show to hear more about how you can save 15 to 30% off your hotel rate. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a miracle? I think most of us probably have. Whether it's a financial emergency, health crisis, or some other serious situation, most of us know the feeling of helplessness and even hopelessness. Now imagine having to wait for a miracle for six months, even a year or more. That's the situation for thousands of children all around the world who are waiting for a sponsor. Their only hope of escaping the poverty around them is someone like you choosing them. This is Nancy Yarrow, and I'm joining with compassion to give you the chance to be the miracle in a child's life. For a little more than a dollar a day, you'll provide the physical, emotional, and spiritual support a child needs, not just to survive poverty, 
but to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Don't make a child wait one day longer for their miracle. You can find out more or sponsor a child right now. Just go to my website, nancyyearout.com. That's www.nancyyearout.com. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hi, this is Nancy Earle, and we are back today with David Dosa, MD. He's a medical doctor. He's worked in a, a home called Steerhouse in Rhode Island for oh, quite a while. How many years was it that you worked there, David? Well, I, I was there until about 2010 clinically, uh, well, well, longer than that probably, but uh, 2011, 2012, time flies when you're having fun. When you're having fun. Um, you know what I but, found interesting, and I don't want to interrupt your train of thought there, but what I found interesting was that both of your parents were pediatricians. Yeah, um, my father, right? well, both, of, both of my parents are physicians. Right. Um, my my mother's a pediatrician, and okay. the family business was always pediatric. So right. my grandfather was a pediatrician, and and you know family before that were pediatricians. My uncle's a pediatrician, so it runs in the family. And I I kind of chose the other path. I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. And and because you know what, not everybody can do what you do. Not everybody has that capacity. I think it's, you know, geriatrics is a unique field and, and, you know, what I love about it is just the stories and uh, being able to talk with people who have lived good lives and, and um, have stories to tell. Pediatrics is the opposite of that. It's all blank canvas and opportunity. And um, with, with geriatrics, you're dealing with people who really had remarkable lives and, and, you know, they can tell those stories and, that to me has always been rewarding. Um, probably the best part about my day job. Well, and as reading through your book, and, and just so the audience knows, um, David tells us stories throughout the book of how Oscar really helped the people. And what I really got out of your book, to be honest with you, David, was I learned a lot about dementia. I learned mm-hmm. about a lot about, you know, we all hear about it, Alzheimer's, um, you know, and, and it's sad. And I, what I learned more than anything, and there's a quote in here, it says, and I love this, you put in here a quote from Charles Dickens, what greater gift than the love of a cat? I thought that was really cute that Charles, here Charles Dickens said that. Um, but when it comes to dementia um, and animals, people uh, who have dementia, when they are around animals, it's more comforting, it seems to them. It seems like it helps them. Well, there are two things that I think I found in my, you know, in my experience that really help. Uh, um, animals are, are remarkable in their ability to open people up when they have cognitive impairment. And the other thing is music and, and you know, this notion that music has this ability, you know, or a way in. 
um, I was just with my father-in-law, who unfortunately has you know Parkinson's dementia this week and uh, this weekend. And you know this notion that he can sit and listen to all the tunes that he grew up with, and and you can tell that he's enjoying it. Um, you know, and that that that's a form of enjoyment, whether or not it's because these music and pets are hardwired somehow into our emotion and and less about you know kind of ready access memory who knows but but it's it's really remarkable that these two things have this ability to open people up you yeah know, they- and and i i agree with you on the music thing i mean that's just it you know it's the and again i'm back to the vibration it's that, yeah. yeah, I'm back to the vibration of the music. And I believe, personally, I believe that um, music is healing um, mm-hmm. for people, um, whether they are ill or not. You know, there's something else I want to talk about. You, How did it work out? Did the cats come into the seer house first and then you brought other animals in? Or, you know, because once, from I think I read something that once you guys realized that the cats were helpful, you brought more in. Is that right? Well, there was this one cat years ago. Uh, Steerhouse has been a nursing home for well over a hundred years, wow. and and so it's existed in a couple of different buildings. And when they were building the current iteration of Steerhouse, there was a cat that used to frequent the construction site. And and um, when they finally came and dedicated uh, the building, and the governor came and they cut the ribbon, one of the first things through the door was actually a cat. <laughs> this cat that was on the construction site decided that he liked what he saw and and went inside and and refused to leave and for months they tried to chase him out and every time he would walk right back in sit down on the on the couches and the in the atrium eventually they just got sick of chasing him out and and they decided you know people used to pet him on the way in and he kind of became this mascot for the organization and and you know i think it wasn't until he actually died years later that that we realized what we had lost and and oscar came as a replacement for this animal that um you know really came into the facility and refused to leave that's wonderful Um, i love that i love that story that's awesome so at that point they brought in more yeah so at that point they brought in a number of uh, different animals and and uh, uh there were two cats on the first floor two cats on the second floor and you know, we had birds and rabbits and all those kinds of, it was a, a little, it was literally a zoo for a little bit. Um, uh, we've kind of backed off of that in, in recent years, but uh, it's uh, it's still a place where their animals are welcome. And, and we certainly do a lot of things with animal, um, animal groups and, and, you know, um, all those you know, um, and of course, Oscar is still there. I was going to ask you, is Oscar, how old is Oscar now? So Oscar now is is in his teens. Okay. Um, he's uh, getting up there as a cat, and and it's uh, you know unfortunately Oscar is now um, not on the unit full time. Um, in fact, most of the time he doesn't go on the unit. Uh, he has very bad allergies, and and uh, we couldn't on the forty bed unit keep him from getting into some of the stuff he was getting into okay. as he started to get older. So now he hangs out most with the nurses okay. um, but he's still there and he'll still come and he's a little friendlier than he used to be um, and does he still of- go when someone's going to pass 
Um, he, he, you know, about a year ago, I know he was on the unit and he attended the death. I'm not there full time clinically anymore, right. so I don't hear every single um, every single case anymore. But I, you know, again, they put him on the unit sometimes when it's quiet and they know, you know, nobody's around, and he'll still wander in and out of rooms. And and yes, I've heard through the grapevine that you know he he has attended deaths in in recent years. Uh, but you know, he spends most of this time now looking out of the window at uh, a bird's nest um, <laughs> outside of uh, outside of Steerhouse. So. Now, have you had people? I'm curious. Have you had people come to Steerhouse and say, "I want to see Oscar"? Absolutely, I Absolutely. bet. <laughs> and in early days, it was um, a little. Uh, you know, I mean, people would come, you know, quote unquote, for the tour, and it became very, very. Uh, you know, very evident early on that they were there to see Oscar. And, oh um, you know, those, the nursing home tried to be as gracious as they could um, in the early days, uh, you know. So um, anyway, obviously over time, you know, there have been fewer visits. But, you know, the, the families obviously who come there and who stay there, obviously they get a kick out of seeing Oscar. Yes. Yeah. Now, I really enjoyed the stories you told. And, and I think, um, you know, you even tell the story uh you tell the story of an office manager donna richard um and then you go back after you said donna was a fantastic office manager she left but when you started to interview people about oscar you went to her and it was interesting when i learned more than anything was um that her mother hated cats but Mm -hmm. she but but she was okay with oscar and and what else what else i really learned about dementia was how the cats helped the family Mm -hmm. you know because it was having Oscar there or even another cat when he was there, it was soothing for the family because what I realized, and I, you know, I thought this was really interesting. You said something like, you know, when people get dementia, you know, the family thinks that if you give them a pill or you give them this or that, that that person will come back. But in reality, that person will never come back. And that you know, was like, wow. I think it was Jack, um, one of the one of the family members, you yeah. know, who I interviewed in the uh, in the book, who says, you know, that uh, I had to learn to love the woman that my mother became, and and you know, I think that that's really profound. That if you're looking for the person who was there in your childhood or a person who you knew from years past, they're not there anymore. It's a different, you know, it's a different person. But that person is still very worthy of love and attention. And and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the people who do caregiving the best are the ones who are willing to accept that and um, who are willing to love the person that, that is there now. And, you know, obviously there's a, a lot of loss when it comes to dementia and, and, you know, we lose our ability to, to do this, that, and the other thing, or we lose our independence or we lose, you know, as caregivers, the person, the people that we loved and cared about. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot there and there's still this idea of being able to um, love the person that your mother became or your husband became or whoever. I think it's really profound and says a lot about how caregiving really can be done, um, you know, 
Uh, it's never a great thing. It's not mm-hmm. what we hope for our loved ones. But, you know, I think, you know, it's it's being able to see a glass as half full, um, you know, or to, to brighten something that otherwise could be really, really, you know, a miserable experience. Yeah, no. And, and I, you know, for anybody, and I will say this, we've got a, a little over a minute to break, but for anybody who has uh, a family member who has dementia, this is a wonderful book to read, not just to hear about Oscar, but to hear the stories. Uh, it really helped me. I don't have anybody in my family that has this. I have a friend who has uh, somebody who close to her um, who has dementia and she was just devastated by it. Um, but I, I love what you say that you just accept the, the new person for who they mm-hmm. are and love them for who they are and the memories, that's when we have the memories of the past and what they used to be. And and I think that's um that's really awesome. You know, um you have a lot of stories in there in the book and, and I want to talk about that a little bit um when we come back. And I also want to talk about hospice because you had some um really interesting things to say about hospice. So you guys, when we come back here in a few minutes, we'll, we're with David Dosa MD. We're talking about his book, Making Rounds with Oscar. Um I'm gonna ask him some more questions and then This is Nancy Yearout, your host, and thanks for joining us today on High Road to Humanity. We'll be right back. We will be right back on High Road to Humanity, but make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or download directly from Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, so you never miss an episode of The High Road. Toginet Radio has partnered with one of the largest travel booking engines in the world to offer savings of 15% to 30% or more on hotel booking fees through our own web portal, www.bestradiotravel.com. Discover the discount you can receive by going to bestradiotravel.com forward slash Nancy to see for yourself. This is a custom booking site for the listeners of my show through Toginet Radio. We have negotiated special rates at over 650,000 hotels worldwide to save our customers money. Our members leverage our massive buying power to save thousands of dollars by booking with us. BestRadioTravel.com can beat the best prices offered by any other major travel booking website. Please go to BestRadioTravel.com slash Nancy to sign up and enjoy the discounts. That is BestRadioTravel.com forward slash Nancy. Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle sparkingwholeness. And now let's get back to the show.
We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hi, this is Nancy Yarrell, and thanks for joining us today. Um, you know, if you get a chance, check out my website. It's nancyyearout.com. Uh, if you're interested in a psychic reading, I do those too. Just sign up on my website. And if you're interested in reading my book, um, you can get it at Barnes & Noble or you can get it at amazon.com. It's called Wake Up, The Universe is Speaking to You. We are here today with David Doso. We're talking about Oscar. We're talking about animals and how they relate to people, uh, how Oscar would come into uh, Steerhouse, which is a retirement facility, and curl up with the patients he had a radar he knows when somebody's going to pass and we're talking about um, people who have dementia and what happens when they pass you know you talked a little bit about hospice David and I want to talk to you about this because when we say hospice I always think and, and this really was an aha moment for me in your book because I always think oh that's the end of life but what you said was that the hospice workers can come in and actually help the person who has the dementia or the Alzheimer's and that that helps the family members as well because it takes some of that relief from mm-hmm. them like I was reading where a lady missed her son's you know football games or basketball games or you know her day was horrible but when you have somebody there in a hospice situation, they don't have to be dying for them to come in. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry about my dog. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) No problem. Um, Hospice is really actually a, it's a Medicare benefit. And, you know, it's a, it's something that's tends to get overlooked um, among healthcare providers. We think of hospice as sort of hanging the morphine and walking away. Mm -hmm. The reality is that hospice is actually um, a benefit that allows us to open the door to things that normally our healthcare doesn't pay for, things like activities of daily living or caregivers who can help with that, um, social workers, uh, spiritual care, um, Reiki, um, you know, massage therapy, aromatherapy, all of these things that normally are not paid for by our healthcare system that, you know, that get opened up with this benefit. And if, if you qualify for hospice and to qualify for hospice, the doctor needs to deem you um, as having a terminal disease and having, in, in their mind, six months or less to live. Um, that is something that opens up and, and, you know, there's a number of benefits that can, can accrue from that. It does not necessarily mean, um, you know, walking away and hanging the morphine. Obviously that's, you know, can be part of it at the end of life if there's pain and discomfort. Right. Um, but the, the bottom line is that it really is something that that can be very helpful in these cases if somebody qualifies. Um, you know, there's actually a study that was done once upon a time that said that uh, people actually live longer sometimes on hospice than, than not on hospice. Right. Uh, I read that. Pain. I read that. I was like, <laughs> life can be extended if you're on hospice. That's crazy. We stop messing around with people and, and doing things to them that, um, you know, that can in and of themselves, you know, be harmful. And, and you know, sometimes the treatment is worse than the disease. And, and you know, I think that that's the reality sometimes of our, our healthcare system. We are in a 
do this, do that kind of healthcare system where we, you know, I mean, it's very hard for doctors to spend the time to talk to people about not doing. It's a lot easier to just do. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's not in the patient's best interest. Right. Well, yeah. And you talked about there was a couple uh, a, a husband and wife and the wife was in the hospice situation. And you talk about this in the beginning of the book. And the husband said, yes, I want all those tests ordered. And yes, I want to do this. And yes, I want to do that. Everything we can to help her. And you said to him, uh, actually, it would make her uncomfortable. And, you know, it's not going to make any difference. She's still, you know, going to have this. And that's hard for, I think, the family to accept, isn't it? Because they want to do everything they can. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is something that I always tell, you know, some of the student doctors that I work with and, and, you know, I tell family members, you have to ask yourself, is the answer to whatever test you're going to do going to make a difference in, in your care pathway? A test should basically be the differentiator between path A and path B. If it's not, then why are we doing the test? Because oftentimes the test can, you know, end up with different things that, you know, then you have to chase down, uh, incidental findings that turn up to be nothing, all those kinds of things that can actually cause harm to, you know, to, to people. So doing more sometimes is actually the wrong thing to do. And, and But yet, yes, family members often will sit there and debate, you know, that, you know, of course I need the MRI of the lower back because my back hurts. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get an MRI, but I'm not going to change what I'm doing for you based on what that MRI tells me. And, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's just one example of, you know, of, the, of how you, you know, can have conversations with family members or with patients about, you know, testing and, and doing a lot of what we do at the end of life for, for patients when, when it actually doesn't necessarily help. Yeah, I think that's wonderful that you um, that you're. Hey, you know, if if the person needs to be comfortable and the tests are not going to make any difference, then let's care about the patient. Um, that is a wonderful um, way to look at things. I think we've gotten kind of backwards on some of this stuff, don't you? I think we have, and you know, I think you know our healthcare system is designed as to be an acute care healthcare system, and and I tell this story. Uh, I don't know, actually, I don't recall if I told it in the book, but you know, I um, when I was meeting with my editors, you know, in writing the book, I all of a sudden developed chest pain and decided, you know, that I needed to go to uh, the emergency room. And I remember, you know, the fantastic care that I got for the first you know 20 minutes I mean they took me to the back in the New York City hospital and um, you know everybody was buzzing around me and I got wonderful care and then they looked at the EKG and realized it was completely normal as it turns out I think I had a panic attack Um, but I sat there for the next 12 hours and nobody came to see me and if you imagine now that, you know, you're somebody who has cognitive impairment and you're confused and, and you can't advocate for yourself, right. that's the reality of our healthcare system. It's, it's 20 minutes of incredible action followed by 12 hours of sitting waiting for somebody to come and, you know, tell you what's next. That's crazy. Uh, that was probably like a really aha moment for you. You probably went, wow, do we all do it? And you probably realized that y'all do that and, yeah. and maybe we need to change it up a bit, right? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, I've had my share of healthcare issues, you know, and I talk about some of them in the book. And, and you know, I think, you know, it does make you a, a I mean, a more empathetic, mm-hmm. you know, doctor. A lot of these tests that I ask people to have, I've had personally. And, you know, I, having an MRI is no fun. Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, so, you know, talking to people about what some of these things, you know, mean in terms of what they're going to experience and those types of things can be very, very helpful. So, yes, it, it, it's not great to have illness. But on the other hand, I do think it makes you a, a more empathetic dog. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about personality change. Um, I, I want to touch on this a little bit. You know, when people get dementia or they, you know, they get um, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, there is a personality change. And um, then you see an anger from the maybe the caregiver or the family member because they're frustrated. You know, I showed you, I think you used the example of, you know, I showed this guy how to, I showed my dad how to put the seatbelt on like five times and I went really slow and he just still couldn't get it. But, you know, it's hard for um, the family because and they get angry because they can't control the situation. And you see a lot of that. I mean, do you have to counsel them on this? Because, you know, you they see such a different personality change in their family, uh, you know, in their loved one. Um, do you talk to them about yeah. this? You know, it's, it's funny because they... The personality changes that occur with with uh, memory impairment, it's part of the disease. And, right. you know, oftentimes it's the first manifestation of, of, of cognitive impairment um, because at that point, most people can kind of still keep it together. And, and um, but sometimes, you know, people will get very depressed. Sometimes, you know, somebody who was always happy-go-lucky becomes, you know, uh, cantankerous. And, and um, sometimes the reverse occurs. I've had people who were, you know, um, who were, you know, uh, bats out of hell who, you know, who all of a sudden become, you know, nice people, (laughs) you know, it's really remarkable. And and obviously you hope that you're getting that as opposed to the reverse. Right. when you have somebody who was always sweet who now you know it becomes very very difficult to to handle but these are the things that obviously affect the family members and and of course memory impairment is you know in the early stages can be very scary and very frustrating for those going through it right but at large it's a disease that affects family members much more than it does the actual you know, the actual patient. It's not painful. It's not, it doesn't hurt. It's not, I mean, there are many, many worse ways that we can think about going than um, with memory impairment. But for the families, it's, it, it's, it's, it's horrible to see sometimes. And, and again, this idea of losing, you know, the person that was there in, in a manner that you remember them is really what's so remarkable with the disease. Yeah, because we don't, well, and I, I jotted down here and I believe we, we don't talk about death. Nobody talks about death, you know, which is kind of crazy because we all die. Um, but it's something that's difficult for our society to even talk about. You know, they think, oh, give us a pill or give us a shot or do do your magic doctor and make this person better. Mm-hmm. But it's just uh, part of life is, is death. And um, I think I'd love to see a change. And that's one of the reasons I do this show is because mm-hmm. I believe there is a higher power. I, be- I call him God. 
And I believe that we all are here to learn our lessons. And, you know, this is a lesson, not just for the person going through it, but it's really, as we talk about this, it's a lesson for the family um, of patience and compassion. And, you know, that's a, it is a really hard lesson, by the way. It is, absolutely. And, yeah. and you know, in the back of the book, I, I have a, a number of pearls that I kind of put together yeah. for. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We got about 30 seconds to break. And I wrote those down, actually, because I, I thought they were interesting that you put that. We're here today with David Dosa. He's a medical doctor. He's written this fabulous book. It's called Making Rounds with Oscar. I picked it up, read the book. A friend of mine who was on the show actually told me about this, just so you know. And I'm so glad you joined us today. This is Nancy Yarrell. We're here with Dr. Dosa, and we'll be right back. We'll be right back with The High Road and more. Don't forget to visit Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to sign up for her intuitive personal coaching program or to book a psychic reading. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a miracle? I think most of us probably have. Whether it's a financial emergency, health crisis, or some other serious situation, most of us know the feeling of helplessness and even hopelessness. Now imagine having to wait for a miracle for six months, even a year or more. That's the situation for thousands of children all around the world who are waiting for a sponsor. Their only hope of escaping the poverty around them is someone like you choosing them. This is Nancy Yarrow, and I'm joining with compassion to give you the chance to be the miracle in a child's life. For a little more than a dollar a day, you'll provide the physical, emotional, and spiritual support a child needs, not just to survive poverty, but to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Don't make a child wait one day longer for their miracle. You can find out more or sponsor a child right now. Just go to my website, nancyyearout.com. That's www.nancyyearout.com. Join the millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles. Entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. 
This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to The High Road. Hi, this is Nancy Arrell, and I am back with you guys today. Um, we, this is our last segment. Our show seems to go by really, really quickly, um, but we're here with David Dosa. David, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, we've discussed a lot of things, and we're going to talk, talk about what you put at the back of your book, too, because I, I jotted down those notes. But before we get there, I was interested about dreams. You said, because you, you mentioned, do people with dementia dream? Can you address that a little bit? I thought that was really interesting. You know, it's it's a fascinating thing. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know the answer, but I, you know, I would hope that, you know, somebody with memory impairment still profoundly dreams and, you know, maybe they are different in, in the sense of, of, of what they, they dream about. But um, at one point in the book, I, I kind of had this sort of, you know, this sort of idea of, you know, does that person who can't really talk to you or, or interact with you still have vibrant dreams? And, and is it possible that they're living through that? And um, It's an interesting question. It's one that, you know, I don't know that we have, have an answer for, but, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can, you can put EEGs on and just see brainwaves and PET scanning and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, one would hope that people, when they have memory impairments, still have very robust dreams. Yeah. Well, and you said something like um, to the effect of that, you know, our minds uh, kind of um, readjust or something in the dream state, which I which I think that's probably right. Maybe that's when we kind of settle our minds a little bit about the events of the day or the events going on mm-hmm. in our lives is where we settle it. So I, right. I just found that really, really interesting that you talked about that. Um you know, you also mentioned or there was a part in the book where you talked how Oscar would go into the rooms a lot of times around 3 a.m. Is that right? I mean, it would depend on, you know, I think when it was quiet at the end, at the middle of the night, he okay. would kind of do his rounds and kind of go in and out of rooms and decide where he was going to stay. Okay. Uh, again, I can't say that I was there at 3 a.m. To, to ascertain that, but uh, um, that's what, you know, the nurses would always say that, you know, as it was quiet and there were fewer people on the, on the floor, that would be what he would do his own rounds. Well, so, and then, yeah, he would do his rounds. And, and the only reason I pick up up on that time is because that's when they say the spirit world's like the most active, the energy's mm-hmm. the highest, you know? So when I saw that, I was like, that's really, really crazy that he would, you know, go around that time. Um, has this made you more spiritual? Um, you know, I think, uh, it has, um, you know, I see a lot of things as a clinician that, that make me more spiritual and things that make me less spiritual. So if I, I would say that it's a battle constantly in my mind of, um, but you know, when you, when you see something like this, it, you can't help but, but see spiritual meaning in it. And, you know, uh, you know, I don't know that I can necessarily debate what they're doing. Obviously, I've heard, you know, he's an angel bringing his, you know, um, his charges to heaven. I've heard, you know, everything, you know, I mean, theories, you know, abound in terms of what he's been doing. But it is a highly spiritual thing to see, you know, um, this type of thing happen. It's very raw. 
you know, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's an experience to some degree that, um, allows you to, to think about your own life and to think about, you know, how you're living your life. And, and, you know, I say that, you know, Oscar's greatest gift is that he has nowhere else to be, but, but right there with those, with those folks. And I think one unifying theme that I always heard from, from uh, family members at the end of life is that it's a very lonely activity. People don't want to, you know, go and, and, and sit there with somebody who's dying. I think it, it, you know, but I, I would tell you that I think it's one of the more spiritual things that you will do in your life. If you can have the experience and, um, you know, I think it's profound and, and so it can't help but make you a little more spiritual. Yeah. We were talking, um, at the end of the book, you, you advise, you have a few things that you advise, um, And you say, take care of yourself, be present. I like this. Celebrate mm-hmm. the little victories, but see the big picture. Um, become an advocate for high quality care. I agree with that. And love and let go. Wow. Those are all yes. really profound things. Can Last you- one is hard because, you know, letting go, you, you know, people instantly gravitate to the end of life, you know, and sort of letting somebody finally go. Um but the reality is we let go all the time. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the whole disease is about letting go, you know, whether it's driving early on, whether it's uh, independence, whether it's being able to, you know, prepare your own food, uh, those types of things. Those are all kind of, you know, marks in the sand where you, you are forced to let go. And um, I think, being bitter um, about those types of things as a disease like this takes its time to flesh mm-hmm. doesn't help the situation. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the folks that do a better job of being a caregiver are the ones that can let go and who right. can see that, you know, we've entered a different stage and now our priorities are different. And now, you know, we need to, to tackle the situation somewhat differently. Um, the C- belt example that you mentioned is a perfect example of that i you know i mean you can get upset about it and and lord knows i probably would be upset if it happened to to me and i was doing it Um, or you can you know like let it go just go with it just go with it right go with it and, and joke about it if you can and and you know those types of things are much healthier in terms of being able to you know to to deal with this type of disease yeah, and i have a question for you and i think about this and i don't know if it's just that i didn't know about uh, dementia has it become more prevalent it seems like maybe it's just because i'm older and i i see it more i hear about dementia i hear more about um alzheimer's what is it more prevalent now than it used to be? Well, I think as a society, as we've gotten older and we started not to die of some of the things we used to die of, uh, um, okay. you know, if you look at, you know, why people died in the 1900s, they're all basically things that we now have pills for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think we are an aging population. Um, you know, the length of our lives has gone up across the board um and you know dementia might be a a sort of more final common pathway that you know people who died at age 40 from their heart attacks you know maybe they would have had dementia at age 80 but 
now because they're living through that are now getting to the point where they have dementia. There's lots of theories on memory impairment and dementia. And, you know, yes, I think it is increasing in prevalence and why that is. You know, um, you know, people have lots of different theories, but I think the biggest reason why you see more and more of it is that we have an aging population. And, you know, with the baby boomer population in, in and of itself, we have this massive spike um, of, of people now getting into their um, retirement age where dementia obviously is much more prevalent. Yeah. And then you see, do you see a lot of family members who just don't want to take care of their family and they definitely just put them right into the restaurant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's what sad, always, but I, I, I could always imagine. Sad and, and, you know, but you can, you know, sometimes you can even understand it. You know, I think, you know, I try not to judge in these kinds of cases right, because right. everybody has their, um, you know, they, they have their own crosses to bear. And sometimes, you know, um, sometimes being a caregiver is not the right thing. If you can't be a caregiver, then, you know, your best bet sometimes is institutionalization where you put, you know, a loved one into a nursing home or assisted living or wherever. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad caregiver. Um, sometimes we just have to make that right. choice. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think the biggest issue with memory impairment and being a caregiver is guilt. So, you know, the guilt is going to come anyway. Um, so, um, sometimes you want to make the right decision. You're going to feel guilty about it either way. So, um, and that's, you know, sometimes what I try to tell people, make the right decision. The guilt is going to be there. Regardless. Yeah, because I can remember my grandma, she was in her 80s, uh, late 80s when she passed, but I can remember her turning on the stove and burning up some skillets and doing different mm-hmm. things like that. And um, my mom saying, oh, we were gone and she could have burned down the house. And and so it gets to a point where you worry if somebody's not there all the time, what could happen? Or even if you are there, you know, it only takes a split second for something like that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes you have to change the environment. Environment, uh, that you, you know of your care and um, you know this is one of the things that you know um, you know I struggle with when I do my day job of you know working with family members and um, I help run a memory clinic you know okay. at RBA and, and you know so we deal with these types of things all the time. So is it possible um, if somebody has the early, if early onset of dementia that you can work with them to um, keep them uh, more, I guess, coherent for longer. I don't know if that's the right verbiage, but so, so the, the medications that are out there, you know, and unfortunately there are too few of them. And, and, you know, again, now this could be an entirely different segment, but, um, the medications that are out there for dementia, if they're used early on, have been shown to improve function uh, for longer. So time to nursing home and things like that do it, do increase okay. when you use some of these medications. But the medications aren't going to make you remember something that you forgot, you know, right. yesterday. Um, so it's not like all of a sudden you're going to become much sharper. And it, we talk about it as a sort of delayed progression, meaning that your slope 
the the uh, the steepness of the descent you know decreases so that it's more gradual and and I think that that's really what you're after you know um, and so yes the sooner you can start to get treated if this is a, a problem for you the better and I think you know ultimately one day we are going to treat and cure dementia whether we cure it or we treat it, I think the idea is that we're going to need to start treating at a much earlier point in life. Right, um, right. You know, treating people in their 30s and 40s who are going to develop dementia in their 70s and 80s. And you'll be able to do that because you'll know the signs early on. I think, I think so. I think, you know, the research seems to be heading in that direction of trying to be able to identify people earlier on who are more likely to develop memory impairment. Similar in a way to diabetes, the way, you know, we have right. no cure for diabetes, but if you treat it early on and you treat it, you know, relatively aggressively, you can sort of, you know, manage the situation. That's my feeling. Um, I wish I could say there's a magic pill coming out next I know, week. I, know. Um, I will be the first one to celebrate if there is. But <laughs> I hear you. So since the books came out, have you gotten wonderful feedback from it? I mean, have you gotten good feedback from people? That's you my know, last question been, for you today. It's been wonderful. I, you know, I, um, getting messages, letters from people over the years, you know, this has made a huge difference. You know, I, I tried to write an end of life book in the form, you know, of a cat book, um, or in the form of, you know, the cat makes it easier you right. know, to digest what is otherwise, you know, very challenging material to cover. And, and, you know, my editor, when I wrote the book, you know, or her boss, um, you know, was really struggling with the idea of the book because nobody buys books on death and dying. It's right. not, right. You know, um, but this idea of, you know, discussing it through the eyes of a cat and through the eyes of this experience is really something makes it more approachable. And right. I think that that's really been, you know, for me, been, you know, one of the great, you know, um, rewards in my career to, to get these kinds of letters. And yeah. uh, at one point there was talk of a movie. Oh. Uh, it, it kind of went, you know, to third base, and then now we're on a hold. So oh I well, if you come back, you got to come back if it's a movie for sure and see me, <laughs> David. Thank you. I just want to thank you for writing this, you guys. It's called "Making Rounds with Oscar: um, The Extraordinary Gift of of an Ordinary Cat" by David Dosa, MD. No, really, thank you because this really enlightened me. I think it's enlightened the audience. Everybody, you need to pick this up. Um, it's just really, really interesting, and it's really heartfelt. And thank you for coming on the show today. Well, Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, you guys, we will let you go and we will see you next week on High Road to Humanity. This is Nancy. You're out your host. Have a great week. Take care. Join me next week on High Road for more stories filled with wisdom, love, and hope for our future. To sign up for my intuitive life coaching or a psychic reading, visit my website, www.nancyyearout.com. My email address is nancy at highroadtohumanity.com. So have a fabulous week and know that by staying on the high road, you will make it to your destination.